0: lucky enough to have something external outside of yourself in America it's usually it's usually money it's usually money okay so the average American uh, says if only I had made another 10,000 a year another 50,000 another 100,000 and we're gonna talk about the moneyness happiness connection in a few minutes um, and that's different from the word simcha the Jewish concept of happiness as you're saying, is something internal. It has to do with um, something that's coming from a very different place that I'm gonna illustrate at first by um, talking about a double enigma, okay? Um, so here's the double enigma. Enigma number one goes like this. Is I'm at a high lifeline retreat, it's a retreat for families Of children facing serious or life-threatening illness and it's now well into Shabbos and we're all sitting around all the parents are sitting around this by this point people are really opening up and there's the Satmar Chasad there and he looks at all the other parents and he says this Rosh Hashanah my son was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. 10 days later on Yom Kippur, I'm sitting in Shul and a wave of happiness washes over me like I've never experienced in my entire life. And I really didn't know what he meant. But all the other parents are nodding with tears in their eyes. So that's enigma number one. How do you understand using the word happiness 10 days after one of the most stressful events that could happen in a parent's life. So that's enigma number one. Enigma number two goes back to um, um, Victor Frankl, who I've quoted throughout the weekend, and Victor Frankl's story in Man's Search for Meaning. About a 20-year-old woman, literally in the last minute of her life. It's the very last minute of this woman's life and she is um, um, calls him over, he's the doctor in the typhus ward, he's a psychiatrist and he's assigned to be the, the, the physician in, the, in, in, in that ward and this 20 year old woman calls him over and says Dr. Frankel I'm looking through the slats in the roof here and I'm looking at God's beautiful sky and the magnificent clouds And the sign of God's hands all over. She says, and as I look at it, I'm thinking, you know, until I came to this horrible place, I was living a frivolous, meaningless life. And now that I'm looking up at God's work, I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. And she closes her eyes and dies. That was at her last minute of her life. Batischaq liyom achron. It's part of what we sing when we sing the Eish Friday night. But how do you understand putting the word joy and happiness in those two moments? So That's the puzzle of the double enigma. So I'm gonna develop that a little bit more, but before we go to that, I wanna fool around a little bit with the concept of H-A-P the concept of the money-happiness connection. What does research tell us about the money-happiness connection? It's very interesting. It's, you know, um, pretty much, it's better to have money, right? Um, It's definitely better to have money. If you have to choose between one and the other, it's better to have money. But once somebody's basic needs are met, one of the more recent studies I've seen, I think it's about $70,000 a year. Um, I imagine in communities that don't charge yeshiva tuition. Okay, But once your basic needs are met, okay, there's absolutely no connection between money and happiness. Okay, You could be rich and miserable, you could be rich and happy. You could be poor and miserable and poor and happy. It has to do with your relationship to yourself. It has to do with what's inside. Let me illustrate this with the story of Robert Frank. It's one of my favorite ways of talking about the money-happiness connection. Robert Frank is a well-known economist, a successful author, very successful in his career. He's a wealthy guy. He grew up with money. And after he finishes college, he's an idealistic man, and he volunteers for the Peace Corps, okay? To do idealistic work, where they assign you to do chesed for a couple of years. You don't have a choice about what you're gonna do, so they assign him to Nepal. So they fly him to Nepal, a van picks him up, takes him on a 12-hour drive to the middle of nowhere in Nepal, an incredibly impoverished area. And they say, you're gonna be teaching here for the next two years. We'll see in two years, bye, okay? (laughs) And they give him a one-room hut to live in, no running water and no electricity, okay? That's what he's given. One room hut, no running water, no electricity. He says to himself, I can't do this. I can't do it, it's not. But he says, it's amazing how quickly he acclimated to that challenge, why? Everybody around him was living in the same conditions. Everybody was in a one-room hut. Nobody had running water, nobody had electricity. He said he was used to it within a couple of days, the way some of our kids get used to summer camps sometimes, you know, in certain, certain places or when you go camping. It, it all has to do with the principle of relative deprivation. Are there people around you doing much better? You're gonna feel pretty poor. Um, and that's very much the operative thing. Here's where the story gets really interesting. After a month there, he doesn't know what he's gonna be getting in salary. He knew they were gonna pay him something. So he gets his first paycheck, first monthly paycheck, and it was for $40 for the month. Says to himself, forget it, in my neighborhood, In New York, okay, well, great next, a fairly well off neighborhood. If you gave your kids $40 a week for allowance, they'd call the Child Protective Service people (laughs) up on them, okay? So he's making $40 a month, $40 a month, and he says to himself, that's it, I'm gonna figure out how to get back to that airport, I'm going home. Then he very quickly discovers that nobody, in that part of Nepal is making any more than $30 a month. So he's making $10 more than anybody else. He's making $40 a month. And he goes on to say he never felt wealthier in his life than he did living on $40 a month in a one-room hut with no running water and no electricity in Nepal. Okay, And that's so true. So much of what we go through is called the principle of relative deprivation. We ask ourselves, how are we doing relative to others? How are we doing relative to others? And that's, that's, just, that's just a terrible yardstick. It's a terrible yardstick. The yardstick is the internal, the internal feeling. You know what the difference is between happiness as happenstance and luck? If you're lucky enough to win the lottery, you'll be happier. By the way, if you win the lottery, the research shows that most people a year later are less happy than they were before. So if anybody wins the lottery, let us know, okay? (laughs) And um, here's the the bottom line. Bottom line is that what's the answer to the double enigma? My Rebbe, Rabbi Palm, for a number of years I was very lucky to have him as my rebbe in my um, post-college religious studies. So, right, Palm used to tell it to us in a way that really captured it. He says, you know, you know what the, hap- you know the difference is between happiness and simcha? It's how you feel the morning after. Okay? He says, when B'nai Yisrael, when the Jews spent eight days of partying, dedicating dedicating the, the Mishkan he says they went home b'simcha lev. they weren't hung over because it was a it was a happiness tied to something more enduring not empty revelry he says if the day after you're hung over okay and it's because you were partying not tied to anything I remember in the years that I worked in a hospital in a totally secular environment I'd come in the day after Rosh Hashanah. some Gedalia, it's a fast day. And you know, I come in the day after and all my friends would say, oh David, you're hungover? And I was thinking, oh, I'm not hungover. I'm stuffed, but I'm not hungover, okay? But they couldn't conceive of a Jewish new year that didn't involve getting yourself out of your mind drunk, okay? So the key to the answer What's the answer behind that chassid 10 days after his son's leukemia diagnosis and that woman in the last minute of her life? It's happiness as "sham, Moach. Happiness is a combination of two words. "Sham, Moach. It's where your head is at. Whereas the Chazon Ish said it beautifully. Who had a very tough life. He said, for he who knows the light of truth, there is no sadness in the world. That's the answer to the double enigma. Ten days after his son was diagnosed with leukemia, why was he feeling such happiness? It isn't the happiness of happenstance, of random happiness. It's not randomness. Instead, it was the enduring simcha. His head and his body and his heart was connected to the three F's of happiness. The three F's of happiness. Who wants to hazard a guess at that one? what's f number 1 that what the psychological research shows is is tied to enduring happiness friends. friends good family and you got the the toughest one most people don't get that one it's family friends and faith if i say this to a group of high school girls they will say they get families and friends they never get they almost always guess the third f is food okay cuz they're starving themselves Okay? And when I say it to boys and they're trying to get to third F, they usually smile. I don't know why. Okay. 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 I'm from out of town. And I'm about to leave. I'm, I'm leaving for here for the plane. I can say whatever I want. I don't know why you guys are laughing. Seriously. I don't understand. Okay. So, um, okay. Um, so, um, that's the answer to the double enigma. Okay? Okay. You ready for us to move on now to deepen this a little bit? Let's tie it to Purim a little bit. I want to tie it to Purim and to Adar, this whole concept of happiness. And the way we'll do it is to talk a little bit about the different approach to life of the humans of the world, of the people in the world who reject our belief in there being an order and a meaning Um, to life and the people who believe that life is random and you grab and get what you could take not guided by ethics but guided by randomness so many of you know this but let me bring it into your lives a little bit number one the hebrew word amalek which is what haman was our eternal enemies that were commanded to really Hold up to the light of day. Why is it we despise Amalek so much? We're a religion of love, not so much of hate. But there are times that we believe in looking at reality in the eyes. Amalek in Gematria, the Jewish numerical equivalent of the word Amalek, is suffake, doubt. Amalek is all about the random. It's about the random. As a matter of fact, in Kabbalistic thinking, You know what the symbol is for Amalek? A zvuv, a fly. How do flies fly around? Random, random movements. It's random movements. Now what does that have to do with our lives? It has a lot to do with our lives. There's a beautiful saying that goes back to the shloh, goes back to the Middle Ages, okay? And the saying goes like this. Ein ba'olam simcha ka'ataras hasveikos. There is nev- no greater joy than the resolution of doubt. It's hard to be in a place psychologically where you don't know where you stand. I'll illustrate it with this story. I haven't told anybody any stories all weekend, so it's time for a story, okay? Okay, people who are living here, don't, uh, people who, were, who, who heard me throughout Shabbos, okay. I have a real problem with telling too many stories. Here's, here's the story of uh, Ambul and some of the Tarsus um, Years ago, very wealthy guy calls me up, and it's an emergency. He says, I'm very depressed, I'm very upset. um, I've never faced anything like this in my life. Um, I need to see you on an emergency basis. Before for a change, I was about to catch a plane somewhere. I was gonna be away for about a week. He's a guy who I saw on and off just to help him with certain problem-solving stuff. And um, he was in a family business, a very, very successful, famous business. And he was sharing the succession with the brother. And um, he tells me a little bit over the phone. He says, The crisis is that I'm having a big fight with my brother um, on the direction to take the business in the next generation. And I don't know where I stand with my father. My father is um, sort of like not being clear, he's not being clear and I just need to see you because I'm literally crawling out of my skin. you sure you have to get that flight? He even offered to fly me in on, on a private plane. I, I told him, sit with it. I gave him an appointment for the second of my plane landed coming back. And um, my, uh, um, I, I called him to check up on him when I'm away. And he says, um, you know, I was thinking, I think I'm gonna cancel our appointment, I'm fine. So I said, what do you mean? He says, on second thought, we'll have the appointment. It's not such an emergency, but I'm fine. We'll have the appointment. I want to make sure I'm thinking about this clearly. My trip ends. I come back. And he comes in to see me. It's my first appointment. I say, what happened? He said, why are you doing so okay? You were falling apart. He said, my brother and my father um, decided to sue me. And my father decided to um, kick me out of the business. Together with my brother, because they decided that that's the direction they want to go in, and they asked me to find another way of making a living. So I asked the obvious question, okay? I said, and you're, you're fine, why? <laughs> he said, because I finally know where I, where I stand. He's a guy who learns, um, and really is a tremendous He says, it hit me for the first time in my life I understand there's no greater reason. some of us may have um, experienced this in our dating days when we're not sure who we should marry and should we stay with this woman should we stay with this man or not you're not sure if you should get divorced or you're not sure about some major decision and, and sometimes the decision goes in the opposite direction of what our dreams are and there's a strange sense Of 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 peace, sometimes, because we need to know where we stand in life, and that's the in part the lesson of Purim. Part in part the lesson of Purim, of it's it's holding ourselves opposite the suffix and the doubt and the randomness. Okay, Um, of um, of uh, of what Amalek is all about. Because when you're connected to yourself. And you're connected to the essence of who you are. That's when life starts to make sense and when happiness comes. Okay, happiness is about that sense of connection, shamoach, but especially the connection to our uniqueness. So I want to talk about uniqueness a little bit. Let me read to you um, from um, a beautiful thought from Rav Kook. Okay. Listen to this thought from Rav Kuk. Is Cook controversial in this part of the world? It's the guy who Rav Shamsam Narbach called uh, Rebbe, and who uh, Rashach called Rebbe. And he's also some Meshbach of mine, okay? So distant, but um, related to my mother in law Shams family. Here's what he says. And I want to develop this a little bit. And here's the key because it's about the connection to the certainty of who we are. Here's the roof cook.Srich Yeda Toho Every person has to know that in their inner essence, there's a fire. There's a fire that is the inner flame that keeps us going. Listen to the next part, the next clause. The A Nero Shalok Ner Havero. There are no two people with identical flames. You know, I've been spending my professional life for the last 40 years meeting with people and doing my best to help them with different problems. I've never met two people who are remotely the same. There's enough commonality to develop approaches to hopefully giving people assistance. But I've never met two people who have an identical flame. Everybody's different. Everybody's different, it's part of what's so fascinating. I've met in this shoal. There's a parallel person in my shoal for everybody I've met here. I say, oh, that's Mr. Uh, Schwartz, or that's Mr. Kath. Oh, there's, um, oh, okay, uh, there's Mrs. Lewinther. There she is, okay, and whatever. And it doesn't take long at all before I, but then as I got to know some of you a little better, you have your own uniqueness. There, this isn't a bizarro world or parallel world between Atlanta and New York City. Okay, it's everybody is unique. Let me go on to to continue reading the Riv Cook. Next one, the ain ish ain lo ner. You know, I've been saying Kaddish this year until yesterday, until last night, and um, I've had some amazing experiences saying Kaddish. It's just it takes you to um, unbelievable experiences including last week where I said Kaddish every day and a Warsaw Shoal, the only Shoal left standing after the war, the Neuschik Shoal. And uh, the stories I got just from how hard it was to get a Minion and how much more I appreciate a community like this where you don't have to worry about a Minion, okay? But um, the, um, one of the, frankly, the most amazing Minion of the year, was I? Um, I went to speak and spend the day in a sh- in a school called Shai. It's um, it's a special school for ch- um, children with hidden intelligence. It's for kids with all kinds of special needs. Okay, and um, I a mincha there. I had to say kaddish. I told them I could come, but only if you if you're sure that I get a mincha. They say, okay, you can a mincha with our kids. So I go in and it's a huge school. There must have been about 60, 70 kids with different varying degrees of, um, of, of challenges. So the first thing that hits me is I walk in and they run over to me and hug me and say, who are you, who are you? Thank you for being here. And they just enveloped me in a way that was unbelievable, unbelievable. Not just the Down syndrome kids, all the kids with different things. The Yahishmei Rabbah of these kids the Yeheshme Rabba of these kids was the most meaningful Yeheshme Rabbas of my life. They screamed it out. And there was authenticity to it and a uniqueness to it. And then they the, the entire davening, They were and they followed me and they were they were amazing. They were amazing. It was like truly, and what was it about? It was about their unique flame, each one of them different, each one of them the same in terms of. Uh, uh, an unvarnished spirituality. Let me finish the of Cook. Yavin, Lamol, the haner barabin. Everybody has to know that you have to work hard to uncover the light of your child, the light of your student or your own light, to share it with the world. And you know what you do with that light? And here's how Rav Cook ends. To set the world ablaze with the unique light of your child, the unique light of your student, the unique light of your, of your grandchild, or your own unique light. We set the world ablaze with our uniqueness when there's no hindering, when there's no blockage, when we're able to express our signature strengths because we're allowed to show our uniqueness. Everybody has a unique gift of some kind. And it's always a beautiful thing to see when people are living in a society that allows that uniqueness to come out. But sometimes it's not so simple. Sometimes it's not so simple. And our job is to not let our stuff get in the way of bringing out the uniqueness in our children because it's our children's signature strength the way you know what your signature strength is, it's what happens when you are expressing the thing that makes you come most alive. It's not necessarily the thing you're best at. The thing that makes you come most alive. The way to know it, there are tests online. You go onto authentic happiness website and you go on there's some tests there and I just when I share stuff, I'll share some of the signature strength stuff, some links so you could take the test or have your kids take the test. But it's a simple way to know it. Um, you ask yourself what are my greatest hits when am I at my best or ask somebody who knows you and is close to you it could be a work colleague, it could be a family person when, when, what are my greatest hits when did you see me come alive and with everybody it's going to be a little different it might be in organizing an event it might be in teaching it might be in doing chesed it might be in whatever it is that's your core gift And when you exercise your signature strength, you don't get tired. When you exercise your, as Rav Nachman says, your nigun yuchad, your unique tune, it's amazing. I shared the architect's story earlier this week, and I asked people to think about it, and some of you thought about it, and came to talk to me, it was an enigma. How many of you heard the architect's story from me in my first talk? And how many of you didn't? Okay, and how many of you were there and just weren't paying attention? <laughs> okay, okay. So I'm going to share the architect's story because I, I warned you. You remember, I warned you. I'm going to come back to it in the last talk. So let me share with you the architect's story and a Rav Yerucham. The Rav Yerucham Lvovitz, okay? First, of Yerucham Levavitz. Rav Yerucham Levavitz, pre-Holocaust Europe, okay? A family, my, um, my, my uh, brother is married to Levavitz. And... Um, Wonderful people, Rav Yeruchim was a brilliant master of mussar and a brilliant psycho. He's my favorite psychologist. So listen to what Rav Yeruchim says. He's talking about Yaakov is blessing each of his each of the twelve children, and it says, "Ish asherkvi Everybody got a uniquely different bracha. No two brachas were the same. And the brachas were dead-on accurate descriptions of the essence of her first says, the essence of their personalities. But here's what Rav Yeruchim says, that I think is at the core of this, and then I'll tell you the architect's story. Rav says that if when you bench your children, when you bless your children, if that's your custom on Friday night, if it isn't, think about it. It's not a bad custom to have, even if you just do it metaphorically, Okay. Because there's a lot of sources saying we should bring that blessing into the week with our children and capturing their uniqueness. Here's what he says. He says, "If what you have in mind when you are dreaming about your children's future and you're hoping that they realize their potential. He says, if what you have in mind is what you want for yourself. If it's about you. I want my child to be a doctor because I never made it that far I want my child to be a brilliant Torah scholar I never was able to do it I came to it too late in life I want my child to be wealthy beyond my wildest dreams so he can support me or she can support me in my old age he says if what you have in mind when you dream and have wishes for your children and their futures is what's best for you he says you know what it's like it's like taking a watering can and watering a plot of earth that has no seeds in it. It's literally a bracha levatala. It's an exercise in futility. In order for our dreams and aspirations for our children to come true, it has to be a match. It has to be a match with their uniqueness and their signature strengths. And what brings them alive, that's the key. That's the key, okay? And that's what it means by ish asher chasab. Every kid We have to connect to them in a different way, and every kid, we have to look into ourselves. We can't have the negius, the self-interest, because that will get in the way of the main instrument of their happiness. Happiness is about a good connection to yourself. Here's the architect's story, and I had different people come to me with different answers to the enigma, and I don't have the answer. But I like leaving you with something that we don't have the answer to. It's good to struggle a little bit, okay? So this is going to be a frustrating question, okay? And I'm not going to even pretend to have the answer because I don't have the answer. I'm in the southern hemisphere, and I'm about to give a talk. I'm asked to give a talk um, in um, in a shul there on Shabbos morning to give the drasha, to give the speech. And as I'm getting up to give the speech, one of my hosts points. To a man in the shawl who I recognize because I've seen his picture on the cover of Newsweek, on the cover of Time, a world renowned doctor, one of the leading doctors in the world, an incredibly successful doctor who um, is immediately recognizable. And I say, I don't even know this guy's Jewish. Say, he's Jewish, and hey, he dines here every Shabbos. So I thought, wow, okay. I got a little nervous. And um, I give a speech, and the topic was uniqueness some of the stuff I'm talking to you about. After the speech, this doctor comes over to me and he says, can I speak to you alone? Can we go into a private part of the, you know, one of the rooms in the show?" And he says, when I was growing up, this famous doctor said, my dream was to be an architect. I took a sketch pad, little notebook, and I go down the streets of this city, sketch all the buildings that I dreamed about one day building. He says, that was my passion. It's all I wanted to be. I dreamt about it. I thought about it. And it's the essence of who I was. My, my signature strength. It's what I needed. It's what I wanted. It was my flame. It was my flame. Time comes for me to be, to clear my major. They have a little bit, they have the European system there. Um, and my parents say, um, you will be a doctor. And he said, no, 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 I'm going to be an architect. They say, no, you're going to be a doctor. You're you're an only child. We're getting older. We need somebody to support us in our old age. And architects don't make money in this country. Doctors make money. And he says, no. And they say, yes. And that was an age where you listened, okay, where kids listened. So he said, I became a doctor. He says, you could ask around. He says, I have a pretty good reputation, okay. So I said, Dr. So-and-so, I mean, who doesn't know you? But that's not what it was about. He then reaches into his pocket and he takes out a spiral notebook. And it's filled with sketches of the buildings that he now knows will never be built. He says, I still walk the streets of the city and I still do these sketches every day. But now I know they'll never be built. And tears are pouring down his eyes. Unbelievable. So the question is, and this is, it's called a Chakira, right? It's like we we think about the pros and the cons, there's no simple answer. The question I posed to people in my first talk when I came to town was who was right, who was wrong? Because I told this story over in two Jewish medical ethics conferences one in um, Switzerland, one in Montreal, and I was attacked by a whole groups of doctors afterwards, saying, do you know what a disaster it would have been if his parents had heard you speak and they had listened to you and let him be an architect? They say, not thousands, but millions of people who are walking the earth today, who are walking, who are alive today, they would not be alive. His surgical techniques and his brilliant diagnostic skills and his gift for teaching, the world needed it. The world needed it. Some people pointed out, well, in his own way, he was an architect, an architect of the body. Other people pointed out, look, he was 83 now. He talked to me, he was already an 83-year-old man. He could have um, left medicine and gone to to, uh, architecture school, become an architect now. Certainly had the connections. He certainly was bright enough. He certainly could have done whatever he wanted. Could have built his own buildings and paid for it. He's a very, very successful man. You know, There are different ways of looking at this, but it shows the complexity of how we do it. The only thing I know with certainty is our job as parents, both for ourselves and for our children and for our grandchildren, is to create a space to allow that flame to burn and to allow that unique melody to take root. Okay? so that's that part okay good we're good with time okay here we go next I want to talk a little bit about um, a little bit about um, Nagias I was speaking to the rabbi and Rebitson earlier today and they, I wasn't going to talk about this but it's about how um, I'm going to talk about Ilish did I do Ilish yet here? I don't think so. It's very unlikely. Illish is one of my, I love the name, I'm trying to get my children to name future grandchildren, at least one, I wanna bring back the name Illish. And you'll see why, because Illish is the hero of a story I'm about to tell you. It's a story from the Talmud, a story from the Gomorrah. And it goes like this. Um, It's about something called ethical fading. What does this have to do with happiness? It's that it has to do with the part of happiness that's tied to being connected to meaning connected to doing the right thing connected to being true to ourselves okay that's an important developing in our children what's called an existential theory of mind for them to be able to know how to have enough internality to know what's right no matter what okay and that's tied to happiness having that inner sense of self So I'm going to tell you the story of Ilish, okay? And then I'm going to tell you a story about one of my granddaughters, okay? And that will finish that section. Here's the story of Ilish. Ilish was the Dr. Doolittle of his time. Mark tells us he spoke the language of the birds, whatever that means. He spoke bird. He was a world-renowned bird linguist, number one guy in the world. And as part of the Greek persecution, he's thrown into prison and he has a cellmate um, who is a non-Jew but also speaks bird but nowhere as gifted a bird linguist as illish is and after they're in prison for a while a raven flies into their cell and says illish run for your life, run for your life run away Ilish turns to his cellmate, a much lesser expert in bird talk, says, excuse me, what did, what did the birds say? What did he say? And um, Ilish, the, his cellmate says, Ilish, you know, you're the master. He said, run for your life. Ilish doesn't pay attention because you can't trust a bird. You just file that away among the facts we reviewed over the weekend. You can't trust a raven. <laughs> Sometime later, a dove, you could always trust the dove, flies into his cell. Same thing happens. The dove says, run for your life, run for your life. Again, he turns to the cellmate. And again, the cellmate says, Ilish, you know, he's saying run for your life. Ilish now runs for his life and saves himself. Saves himself. Because you could always trust the dove. Okay? So, Rav Akiva Eger, later echoed by um, Riv, um, Riv Shmulevitz, asks the obvious question. Here we have one of the world's leading bird linguists. Why is he turning to somebody who's maybe a student of a student of a student of his? Why go to somebody who doesn't know nearly as much as you? You know the answer. Have the courage of your knowledge and act on it. So brilliantly, both through Eger and then later on Rishmulevitz says, because he knew, Ilish knew, he had something called negiyah, self-interest. Something called negiyah, which means that he knew that he wanted nothing more in life than to be told to run for your life. And he knew how dangerous it was to act on that without getting a second opinion. We're to quote two famous yeshiva Elementary school graduates, okay? A man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest, as Simon and Garfunkel said, okay? Okay, went through Moshe Feinstein's Yeshiva, RJJ. A man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. That's how I know this song, otherwise I never would have learned it, okay? A man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest, which basically means that um, that there's a a normal um, tendency. Most people have good moral knowledge. You know the right thing to do. I'm sure if I gave a quiz to you on the right thing to do in a variety of ethical or moral dilemmas that test our core beliefs, we would know the right answer, but it's when it goes into real life, especially when there's self-interest, something that neuroethicists at Harvard call ethical fading. Ethical fading is, As soon as self-interest is involved, I want want guidance, I want to be able to escape this prison. I want to be able to get a higher salary, so on this job interview, I'll lie about the salary I'm getting now. Or I want to be able to say that my kids should get half price in order to get um, this train ride or get into this movie or whatever, because, uh, you know, I'll save uh, 12 bucks or to get into Disney or whatever. So as soon as ethical fading takes over, we tend to see the trees rather than the forest. We tend to somehow, our judgment gets clouded, or as I'm saying, Nagias takes over. So let me bring this home. Again, I play with my grandchildren. It sounds like a nightmare. I know it sounds like a nightmare. It's called Ethical Dilemma. And my grandchildren fight with each other anytime they come to, to our house for Shabbos on who gets to walk Saba to and from Shul so that we could play ethical dilemma they love it because it's real life and I'm talking about even ethical dilemmas they'll have on the playground or what happens if they witness bullying what happens if they see things that aren't so right so we play ethical dilemma okay they love they truly love it they truly love it okay so um, I have a um, nine-year-old granddaughter who's a genius in ethical dilemma she's so much better than I am at any of this and she loves playing she's really good She's really good. It's totally objective, by the way, okay? <laughs> so, um, uh, Pesach before last, after the star room, our family goes to some of these, you know, one of these programs where, you know, in a beautiful hotel, it's not a bad deal, okay? Um, and um, I have to work a lot, but the family loves it. So I take that, um, I take that, th- that um, the family, where this uh, nine-year-old girl comes from. And there's a summer camp. Uh, Not a summer camp. There's a Pesach uh, camp. And um, they have a counselor. And one Chalmoe morning, the counselor is telling them to do something. And all the girls in that group says, let's disappear the counselor. You know what that means? Let's make believe she's invisible. And whatever she tells us to do, she's going to be a ghost to us. We're disappearing her. So all the girls start doing it. It's not a pleasant place to be, to be iced out. You know, when you're iced out of something, you, you, your skin temperature goes down. You know that? Uh, even if you're just iced out for a short period of time. If I played a game of catch with any uh, two of you, and we were, you know, having a fair game of catch, you know, three-way catch, and then, by prearrangement, I started throwing the ball only to one of you, icing out the third, the third person who's iced out will have a significant dra- drop in his or her skin temperature. Be a lot of changes, literally you become colder when you're iced out, which is fine for a short period of time, but when it's done over a long period of time, there's some more, much more serious psychological outcomes. But anyway, so this granddaughter, a real um, a veteran of playing ethical dilemma with her crazy grandfather, she tells the kids, excuse me, I have to go. She goes, running to my daughter, and she said, "Who well, you know, this is Karen, and she says, Ima, Ima, I have an ethical dilemma, I have an ethical dilemma, what am I gonna do? And she talks it out with my daughter, my daughter says, you, you, you know what to do, you, you, you tell me what you think the right thing is. And they talk it out, she goes back to the girls, and she says, I, I can't do this. And they avoid her for the rest of yontif. but we were very proud of her, we gave her all she wanted to eat, you know? It was, uh, but, the, but the bottom line is, we could bring voice to values. There's, um, you know, there's a whole um, and it's fun and kids like it kids like having to think about these things and it's one of the ways of bridging the gap between moral knowledge and moral action and more importantly I think in general it's the key to happiness because it allows for us to find our moral core our internal core okay next part whatever it is okay uh, the next part I know better than to give numbers because every time I've given numbers over the Shabbos people come to me and say you're, you're going to give five points you only gave four yeah. or, you, or you, you said you only gave four points you gave five or you gave six many people came to you which I love because it means you're paying attention much, much better than I am so here's the uh, next point I'm going to talk a little bit about gratitude and then um, we'll, we'll have time for discussion here's gratitude um, in terms of that aspect of, oh, or should I do chesed? Let's have a vote. How many of you prefer gratitude? By raising your hand? Or I could do both, or chesed, I could do both, okay. I'll do gratitude and chesed. Let's do chesed. Um, I'll start with chesed. Um, yeah, I'll do chesed. Um, here's, here's, here's the research on chesed. Do you know, just a simple, basic thing, Really well done longitudinal study found that if you require your children to help out, you have them do chores, going to their adulthood, okay, they're going to have more successful outcomes. Kids come from families who they had to do chores. They had to maybe make their bed, they had to take out the garbage. They had to, um, you know, maybe even in shul, set up kiddush, break down kiddush, set up chairs. Okay? This has nothing to do with wealth, it has nothing, but it has to do with the component of happiness that's tied to required helpfulness, doing chesed. In the affluenza study, they looked at a group of wealthy kids from a wealthy suburb of New York City and compared them to kids from the other side of the tracks and asked, Um, They wanted to show, Dr. Sonia Luther from Columbia wanted to show that these kids would have higher levels of of, that the poor kids weren't going to be doing as well. And you'd see real, you know, real psychological resilience and high functioning in the rich kids. And she was shocked to find what she called affluenza. The rich kids had triple the rate of depression compared to the poor kids the rich kids had triple the rate of anxiety, triple the rate of alcohol and substance abuse so then she did a series of three studies to deconstruct what's underneath affluenza, what's it about what's it about Okay. and she found in the series of studies the following three core ingredients behind affluenza number one we've been talking about Uniqueness. It's never enough just to be average coming from this wealthy community. It happens to have been Scarsdale, New York, but this could just as easily be in any well off community. Okay? It's never enough just to be average. You know, when's the last time people come to Shoals saying, oh, my kid got 50th percentile on the SATs? Not bad, huh? 50th percentile. You don't do that. You can't do that. Your kid, it's never, no, you have to excel. You have to be in the top percentile or in the top. You know, top part of the top percentile, and otherwise you're going to feel less than, and you're going to turn, man. You're going to feel, you're going to feel depressed, and you're going to feel anxious, and you're going to self-medicate with drugs. You're you're at greater risk for that. Ingredient number two of the three was um, time, which I talked about at length in my previous talks, and had a ritualized stealing time, where that has whose parents were there but they were preoccupied. They were spending a lot of time looking down at their phones. They were spending a lot of time involved either in their careers or in community work. And in order for kids to internalize values, as I spoke about in other talks, you have to have parents who are truly there. Not all the time, but enough time that a kid knows they have the value of parents really having dinner with them, where they put everything else away and give them undivided attention. We're really sealing at least ten minutes with them a day, one on one or whatever the amount of time might be, and the third is required helpfulness that the kids in the poor neighborhoods they had to help each other out that 's what poor people do okay you know you might have to help with babysitting, you might have to help with with um, you know with uh, a variety of things you know people in poor neighborhoods it 's communities that uh, come together, there was a study that was done this year that was amazing, they found that during a terrible heat wave in a neighborhood in um, New York, um, there were two demographically identical communities. They were uh, separated, I think, by a small bridge or something. One had no deaths tied to the heat wave. The other, identical community, had something like 20 deaths and when they try to deconstruct why is it that this side of town had no deaths? it's because it was a, a network an underground network everybody would check in on everybody else everybody felt responsible for everybody else as opposed to the other neighborhood where you didn't have you didn't have that network of support okay so it's required helpfulness when kids are required to pitch in and help it makes an enormous, enormous difference. We're going to get to quite, uh, okay, go ahead. I, we'll, we'll, should we do questions, or should I try to finish, or what would you rather do? Finish. Finish. I should finish, okay. So I apologize, and um, I, I'd love to take questions, but I'm, I'm going to behave myself. Um, so let me, let, me, um, let me share with you a study and a story on chesed, Okay so here's the um here's uh, the study the study the chesed study goes like this i have so many um here's on health and volunteering well elderly individuals volunteer they have a 40 percent lower probability of dying in a given year than matched controls it literally affects your immune system and then in my favorite study they take 132 people with uh with ms with multiple sclerosis Randomly assign them to two groups. One group is the giver, the other group is the taker. The givers, just as sick as the takers, check up on the takers every day, take them to doctors, do shopping for them, and the takers take. Givers give, takers take. In a very short period of time, I think it was, was it four months? I'll tell you how long. Um, Yeah. I think it's in less than six months the givers show a three to seven fold improvement in their MS symptoms they show lower levels of depression they feel better they do better and in general the waxing and waning of the MS symptoms has a whole different form it's the power of giving when we give and there's a lot more to to quote General um, Schwarzkopf right you can't help someone get up a hill without getting closer to the top yourself I have a lot more on that, but let me end this with a story that somebody just reminded me of. I forgot it. I forget stories. Um, It's uh, the blind lady story, okay? Love this story, I haven't told it in years. So thank you to somebody here who told me, I remember your blind lady story. So listen to this story. It goes like this. Um, I I, I was working with the Hasidisha community, and there was a woman in that community who was very active and doing community work, a very um, very charismatic and impressive woman. And um, she invited me to give a talk in her community, and I foolishly came on time, forgetting this is a community, that's not the culture. So it's called for eight o'clock, and I came at eight when people are, there's no way nobody's gonna come until 10, if I'm lucky, if I'm lucky. So I come at eight, but she knew, and so we, we were schmoozing there in this auditorium. And um, she schmoozed with me and she tells me the following story. She says that um, uh, she has a very large family. I think she has 12 children. Unfortunately, her husband had been killed in a, by a drunk driver. She had been through a lot, a lot of difficult things in her, in her life. And um, she said into her community Apartment. She's obviously you know, not a wealthy. In the community nearby, a, a blind woman moves there to one of the apartment buildings in her community. So immediately, she hears a blind woman. She immediately assigns each of her children. This is required helpfulness. So she goes to one kid, you know, you have to bring meals to, um, we'll call her again, we'll call her uh, Mrs. Cone. You have to bring meals to Mrs. Cone. Another kid is, um, you know, you have to do shopping. Then she goes to her then, um, I think, nine or ten-year-old daughter and says, you will go over to Mrs. Cohn's house every night after school and read to her. She can't read. She's blind. Now, this little girl was very shy. Biggest nightmare in the world would be for her to have to read to Mrs. Cohn. And she says, um, she says, Mommy, um, you forgot, I'm shy, I'm not doing it. And she says, oh no, no, you don't have to want to do it, you just have to do it. That's required helpfulness. That's required helpfulness. And the girl goes, and of course it becomes the high point of her week, reading to Mrs. Cohn. So, about six, seven months into the process, one day after reading, Mrs. Cohn lets out a sigh and she turns to the little girl and she says, you know, she says, two more years, two more years, I'm gonna start getting social security. She was 63 years old. I'm gonna start getting social security and I'll be able to save up enough money to have an operation so I can see. Okay? girl says, what are you talking about? You can't see, you're blind. She says, no, no, no. She says, they now have improved their surgery techniques And there's an operation I could have. She's like, I can't afford it. I'm on, you know, I I don't have money. But in two years, I start getting a slightly higher check. I'm going to be able to save up. And um, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be able to see. Just two more years of being blind. Little girl doesn't say a word. Doesn't tell her mother anything. Doesn't tell anybody in the community a thing. Doesn't tell anybody. She quietly goes to school, her yeshiva the next day, her seminary. And she overcomes her shyness. She goes from room to room to room, and she says, um, "There's a blind lady." The shy kids talk says, so There's a blind lady um, in the building next to me. And, and um, she needs an operation so she could see." Okay you didn't hear me. She says, "There's a blind lady in the building next to me. She needs an operation so she could see." And she goes from class to class, doesn't ask for permission. she just does it. And she comes running home. I'm sorry, running after school. She runs to Mrs. Cohn's apartment. And she says, Mrs. Cone, Mrs. Cohn, I have the money for the operation. She has like 54 tattered single dollar bills, maybe enough to pay for the TV for one of the days in, in the hospital. And she takes poor Mrs. Cone. What does she know? She figures the girl has the money for the operation. And she schleps her to um, a firm ophthalmologist who has an office around the corner in this urban area. And she waits, she doesn't have an appointment, and they wait for hours. They wait for hours. And finally, and by the, uh, this is 100%, the, the way I know this story is 100% true, is um, I once told it over in a reporter, of a, a, a Jewish paper was in the audience, and he published it, and I got an email from the, from the formerly blind lady, and I got an email from the ophthalmologist saying this absolutely happened, okay? So um, she waits, and the... Um, The doctor comes out, he sees a little girl, clearly blind woman, he does an exam, says, you don't have to be blind anymore. Let me take care of it. And he does the surgery, he does the surgery. And then you need an extended period of uh, rehab till your brain realizes it can see. It's a whole complex thing. You can't even do that if you were born blind, but if you became blind at a certain age, like this woman, you're able to see again, okay? in case there are medical people here, very often ophthalmologists in the audience have explained this to me. So, um, mother doesn't know about it. Nobody really knows what happened to Mrs. Cohn. But about two years later, Mrs. Cohn now is independent and she could see again. She moves back home. First, That's the first thing you would do. She goes to my friend's house to look for the little girl to thank her for the gift of her sight. She goes... And my friend says, what, what, where have you been? We don't know what's happened to you. And Mrs. Cohn says, um, oh my God, I, I, I had no idea. I'm sorry, Mrs., my, my friend says, I, I, I had no idea. Um, unbelievable, you know, unbelievable. She's so proud of her daughter, she gives her a hug, but she realizes she has a debt to pay. It Doesn't cost 54 tattered dollar bills to have this kind of surgery. So she goes to the doctor's office and she waits and he comes out, finally could see her. She says, I'm the mother of that little girl. And she takes out a check, checkbook. And she says, look, I don't have a lot of money. It'll probably take me the rest of my life. I'm going to pay off this debt. And she writes a check out, let's say, for $1,000 to pay, um, to pay, start paying back the debt. And the doctor laughs. He says, are you kidding? He says, how often? you get to do the chesed, of giving sight to a woman who hasn't seen for the majority of her life. He says, you know how lucky I am to have been able to have your daughter come. Then he says, can you do me a favor? And he reaches into his pocket and he takes out the 54 tattered singles. He says, I carry this wherever I go because it restores my faith in you, man. He says, can I keep this? Okay. And that's the end of the story, the power of chesed, the power of chesed. Okay, um, I could either end it, we, we have to end, um, we could, we, I could either end it, um, I, I forgot my plane, whatever it is. Let me, let me end with one last story that I promised last night, um, and it's my favorite story on uniqueness, okay? And, and I'll, then I'll have um, done everything I'd set out to do. Is that okay? We, we're good with that? Okay. Huh? Gratitude is my favorite topic. I love gratitude. Um, I'll do gratitude instead. Here's gratitude. No? Okay. Um, I get myself in trouble. You don't have any planes I've missed over the years? Okay, here's, here's, here's gratitude. Um, a little bit on gratitude. Gratitude is core, it's central, okay? And, um, yeah. Uh, the problem with gratitude is what my father, Oliver Shalm, would call the ordeal of the ordinary. The ordeal of the ordinary, meaning we habituate to everything. We habituate to everything. Okay? We get used to the most remarkable things. Okay? Um, you know, you could, I, I always think of this when I go to a Pesach program, let's say out in the Canadian Rockies and there's unbelievable beauty. And the first day you come there, you're saying, Ma rabu Hashem. this is unbelievable. By day three or by day four, people don't see it anymore. You don't see it anymore. And yet, to the extent that you could overcome habituation and figure out a way to pay attention to things that we take for granted, to override our brain's habituate and to figure out a way to still be grateful, the research shows higher levels of happiness, higher levels of even physical health, we sleep better, okay? But before you fall asleep at night, you think about three things you're grateful for. Like you get images in your mind of a a favorite memory with a child or a grandchild or a vacation or a high point in your life, and you go from the negative because our default setting is to think about the negative. Our brain pulls us down to the negative, but you override it to go to the strengths, to go to the positive, to go to what we have to be grateful for, you'll fall asleep more quickly and you'll feel more rested the next day. But it's hard. So one of the main recommendations is called, um, you have to overcome it by ritualizing it, like I spoke about yesterday, right? You know, you have to ritualize it. So they have something called the count your blessing exercise. So the count your blessing exercise goes like this. As you go around the table, let's say Friday night, and you say one thing from the week that you're grateful for. And that is associated with higher levels of happiness. There are a number of other things. There's a gratitude visit, there's a lot of when, in the courses we teach, you have about four or five interventions, but that's the easiest one to do, count your blessing. And it's done in schools very often, right? So, um, number of years ago, I think this was 2002, my main area is trauma. I was invited to go to Eretz Yisrael for a couple of weeks to go to, um, and this will be my concluding story, okay? I was invited to go to Eretz Yisrael and um, uh, to work with the death notification squad. These are the people, the psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, and other therapists whose job was that when somebody was killed in a terror bombing, which in those days were happening multiple times every day, it was a horrific time. Um, they would have to go, knock on the door, tell people, you just lost your father, your mother, your son, your daughter, your, but whatever it was, and to stay there, you know, to make funeral arrangements, to be with the family, and to just be there at their side. You know, one of the most beautiful imagery, a piece of imagery I have is to study about, they take per- people, put them at the bottom of the hill, and they say, estimate the steepness of the hill. If you're alone, you see the hill is very steep. If you have somebody at your side, the hill looks less steep. The closer you are to the person at your side, the less steep the hill looks, the less tired you get walking up the hill. Fine. So um, I'm there for a couple of weeks, and um, it was incredibly intense um, and um, after um, the two weeks, I wasn't allowed to go straight home. I was going to go to um, um, England. Chief Rabbi, then the Lord. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs had invited me to be the visiting scholar for two days in um, Burmouth. By the way, rabbinic cricket is um, amazing. That was one of their main sports there. They had all these suited bearded rabbis who would play rabbinic cricket, um, which I think could be a televised sport. Not the Super Bowl, but I think it could be a good televised sport. So, um, as I'm leaving to go to Ben-Gurion, to go to Heathrow, I had a tight connection, but I'd been invited to a good friend's wedding. And I figure, you know what, how, how often do you get to go to a good friend's wedding? It was taking place right after I finished my last meeting with the death notification squad. So. I, um, I tell the cab driver, look, you know, I, I, there's a wedding, I'll pay you for waiting time. Just let me run in and say Mazel Tov. So he takes me to a hotel that, um, it's an outside chuppah. And um, the weather was perfect. It was 70 degrees, perfect, perfect weather. And it was the happiest bride and groom I ever saw in my life. Literally, without exaggerating, the bride, was jumping up and down with joy, okay? She was literally, and and the groom only slightly, I mean, they were all, there was an everybody. It was a special moment. The sun is setting over the beautiful ancient walls of Jerusalem over the Chomot, okay? The miracle of not a single cell phone ringing, okay? Um, And this incredibly happy bride and groom, and it was just the unique spiritual moment. Last time we talked about spirituality being about connection. It was a deep, deep connection. And I was so happy I went and I just see the chuppah. It was unbelievable. And um, uh, I run over and give a quick mazel tough run to the cab, barely catch the plane to Heathrow. I watch rabbinic cricket I, I, and I gave some talks, okay. And then I land at JFK maybe an hour before Shabbos, okay? And we live right near JFK, by the way. So um, I rush home and I am totally burned out. Single compassion fatigue. You just burn out after a while. And I just needed, I needed to decompress a little bit. It's Friday night, I just needed to go to sleep. I'm jet-lagged, I'm emotionally drained, I've had it. My wife was, was there. My four kids then were young. And my wife, we're sitting around the Friday night table. She says, okay, count your blessings, everybody. Tell me the high point of your week. And I wanted to kill her. I said, it's for other people. It's not for us. I want to go to sleep. But she's very patient, thank God. And she turns to, to us. She says, fine, you can pass. That's okay. And my kids share their high point of their week. They, they know they can't get out of it. You know, it's another cost of having a psychologist for a father. And, um get up to me, and I was going to pass. I'd forgotten about the wedding. Okay? Somehow, because everything was too much. And I, I start sharing the wedding with my wife and children. And as I'm sharing that special, special moment, I almost feel it going from short-term memory to long-term memory. Like a memory that, and, and, and my children learn that about me, and my wife learns that about me. That's the power of sharing gratitude. That's the power of bringing an end that makes you happy. It makes you happy. It's Shamoach. It's Shamoach. So thank you, everybody. It's been a wonderful couple of days. You're an amazing community. Thank you. And, um, and uh, very good. Okay. So um, and enjoy the halftime of the Super Bowl hearing the wonderful uh, shear from the rabbi. Okay? Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, I, by the way, um, should, right, should we have questions till 12 or, or should we just go? Yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to hear questions. So yes, well, you, I owe you an answer. Let's hear questions. yeah. I'm going to sit Yeah, please. Um, regarding like doing chores, like giving, yeah. does it change the outcome Yeah, so the question is, um, when your kids do chores, can you pay them? And when you pay them, does it take away from, from, the, good, from the good of it? So my bias, I, I don't, I think there might even be a little bit of research on this, but I can't recall it exactly, is it's better not to pay them. You may, there may be things that you can have to pay them for, other things, but there should be something in their lives that they do just as part of being part of the family. In three longitudinal studies of very highly stressed out islands, Martha's Vineyard, Burma, (laughs) and back then, back in the day, this was done in the 1950s, and Kauai. They're beautiful vacation spots now, but back then, the year-round population was very, very poor. And you're right to laugh at that, you're right. But back then, these were horrifically impoverished. High crime, high poverty, high abuse. So they tried to look at what predicts long-term positive outcomes in those places, of the kids there. And it turns out a third were resilient, a third middle, and a third uh, succumbed to the ravages of poverty and abuse. And it turned out that one of the core predictors of resilience was having to pitch in and help without being paid, without being paid. Paying is fine, that can teach budgeting and responsibility. But I would have part of it, you just do it because you're part of this family and we're in this together. Yeah, that's an important question, thank you. Okay, oh uh, yeah, please. Uh, speaking of this uh, idea of, uh, of uh, I forget what you call it about uh, not forced helping, but uh, it's- Required, help, required help. help. right. Okay, I have, I have some kids in, my, in their 20s and they're great kids, but. Uh, I still, one of them was at home, to me, and I really struggled to get him to pitch in. And yeah. I decided that, you know, I don't want to be the, the harpy, you know, always you know, being nagging him. So I just kind of waited for him to, to kind of get the message. So what, when you have a child who's already uh, a young adult, and, and still they haven't quite gotten the hang of this whole idea of chores, but what is there to be done with them? Um, right, so, so the question is, let's say you have a child who's emerging adult, okay. he or she is in their early 20s, and you know, they're, you, you, they're, they're, and you never required them to work, you know, to do anything, uh, you know, and now, d- does, does this child, uh, this child is self-sufficient in terms of the... Um, <laughs> but, but working towards that, like going to school, so... Okay, good, I hear, I hear. You're, what you're talking about describes probably um, a huge percentage of, uh, right. of parents uh, who have single kids at home. Um, so there, and it's, it's, it's an interesting question actually because one of the part of an assignment we give in one of our graduate classes is just that, you know, how do you, how do you handle that? and What happens if you're supporting your child and yet you feel that they're not, they're not giving back? So there, I, I would, look, if you're talking about a bright, a bright kid, kid, a normal kid, to me, it's all about striking when the iron is cold. You never yell about it, you never scream about it, you never act in a heated way. You, have, you, you sit down and have a talk. You sit down and you talk about something. say, you're thinking about it. You know, there's a concept in Judaism right? It means the bread of shame. What it means is we're not designed to take without giving back. From a Jewish standpoint, there's something fundamentally off with taking without giving back. We're reciprocal people. You know? And in general, if we're alive, we need there needs to be reciprocity. And it should be uncomfortable for him. Now he's probably just so used to it that he's not into it. Rabbi, is it how do you pronounce Kisuf or is it Nahamad Kisufa? So that's the bread of shame. So don't, don't say, don't use that at home, okay? But what you do is, is you say, what and you've thinking about it, and you just think that just from the standpoint of fairness and from the standpoint of, um, of uh, reciprocity, it would be better for him also that um, you would like to talk about a way that he could uh, chip in to um, either to the expenses of a household, even if it means he has to get a part-time job, has to drive or whatever it might be, or if it means that he, um, he does uh, some of the um, common chores, you know, maybe he'll do garbage, maybe he'll help prepare a meal three times or two times a week, but something. I think the inherent fairness of that will become clear to him, and um, I, think it's, I think it's good preparation for marriage. Okay? So. His or mine? <laughs> Both. Uh, thank you. That's thank you. a great, great point. Um, thank you everybody. Thank you. was a couple left in the rotunda uh, for sale. Also, if anybody is interested in any of the statistics or the slides, that back of the book is offered the course of the uh, media. Please contact me and I can try to draw your tape. Yeah. Studies that 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 Mm website Dr. Belkyan made forward to me. Yeah, he has to tell me which.